Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 8th of June, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Debbie Evans. It's nearly halfway through the month. Uh, it is nearly. Uh, so we should get straight on with the uh, clown show, uh, which, of course, is Boris. And there he was yesterday uh, welcoming the cabinet and telling them all what a great day it was. The day that Monday had been a fantastic day. It was a good work that was done in order to get the vote through. Uh, 211 MPs voted for him and 148 voted against him. And that's uh, somewhat worse than uh, Theresa May's uh, confidence vote, which was in December 2018, of course, uh, and she was gone six months afterwards. So the question is, how long can he stick it out? It is a clown show. It's a charade. It's, uh, but there's clearly uh, moves afoot to replace him in some way. So who could it be? Could it be the lovely Liz? This is the question. And where would we be, Brian, if, if Boris was replaced by Liz? Would well, we be uh, in a better position? No, I... I, I... I've got to shock our audience by saying I think we've been in a worse position because this lady has demonstrated that she's unbelievably callous and calculating, calling for young people to go to Ukraine to fight. She wants the war with Ukraine. So what is in Liz Truss's head? Nothing to do with bettering the state of this nation. She wants perpetual war. Uh, and uh, well, Debbie, we could welcome you in at this point and say that the other person who may be in front running this uh, campaign is Jeremy Hunt, of course. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, where do I start, Mike? Jeremy Hunt. I mean, I think uh, there's plots going on ahead. Um, Apparently, Boris is being urged to make him Chancellor of the Exchequer in his next reshuffle. But, you know, Jeremy Hunt, Nadine Doris had a proper attack on him um, over Twitter and actually admitted that whilst uh, on his watch, the NHS was in collapse back then. And, and I can tell everybody today that the NHS is in complete and utter collapse today. And he even said, I doubt the NHS would want me back. Well, the country doesn't want him back. And um, I'll have to call him Jeremy because I don't want to make a slip up. But, you know, the WEF want Jeremy Hunt as leader of this country. The WHO want Jeremy Hunt. And he's just Keir Starmer in a blue tie, as far as I'm concerned. So uh, yep. haven't got much, much good to say about Jeremy Hunt, especially as he's not replied to me. Yes, brilliant. I think that sums it up pretty well. But uh, look, it doesn't end there because uh, the, the moves are afoot to change the rules within the Tory party because uh, supposedly Boris is safe now for a year from another confidence vote, but they want to reduce that to six months. Uh, and, uh, well, some of his mates seem to be coming out of the woodwork to try to support that. But uh, what's the press saying? Well, today, uh, cut taxes. That's how he stays in, in power. If he cuts taxes, uh, that'll make everybody in the Tory party happy and uh, he will remain as leader. Uh, so, sorry, just before you call, I just wanted to show this because it's right across the press. So, so this is the BBC. Uh, the Times, uh, Boris told told to cut taxes if he wants to survive. Uh, the Times even did uh, an op-ed on this. Uh, the Times view on Boris Johnson's future, and they're talking about cutting taxes. So the Murdoch press absolutely on for cutting taxes. Here's the sun. Boris Johnson will thwart the Tony Remainer rebels if he slashes taxes. So it's all about tax cuts, all while government spending goes through the roof. Yep. How could it possibly go wrong, Brian? Well, it's already gone wrong, but it's just going to get worse. So, so of course, uh, fuel prices rocketing. So £2 a litre on the motorway for everybody to see. Um, inflation increasing. But don't worry about any of that because allegedly he's going to 
cut taxes. So the scam continues. Yes. Uh, well, let's switch to uh, another scam agency, which, of course, is the BBC. Uh, we've been watching their reporting on Ukraine very carefully. Well, of course, the Jubilee weekend is over. So the BBC is back on track with uh, uh, the Ukraine. But we thought we'd just have a little look at how they're dealing with things at the moment. So uh, although the link through to this page that you've got on screen is quite small. Uh, once you open up the Ukrainian live page, of course, it's big banner headlines, lots of graphics and exciting scan throughs. Um, but uh, we just thought we'd pick up on this. And we were interested in the first article, new details about US weapons sent to Ukraine. And uh, let's have a look at the comment on this. Now, I'm going to say straight away, did you actually spot the BBC lie? Here's the text. New details have been released of the total amount of US weapons and equipment sent to Ukraine since the conflict started on 24 February. More than $4 billion worth of military hardware has, uh, has been given to Ukraine and much of it is now in the country. The US is by far the biggest uh, contributor. Well, this is the lie because, of course, this uh, equipment has not been given to Ukraine. Uh, most of it has been pushed through on a lend-lease agreement. So bankrupt Ukraine. Ukraine is fully bankrupt now because the US is covering costs of public servants and the Ukrainian government. But that bankrupt Ukraine is still going to be expected to pay back the equipment that it's been given. So the BBC utterly lying in its setting out of this because by, by uh, leaving this vital fact out, you're painting a completely different picture as to what's going on in Ukraine. So I, I thought that was worth highlighting. But that little section uh, from the BBC goes on to this because it says donated weapons include. So let's have a look. Six and a half thousand Javelin anti-tank missiles, 20,000 light, light anti-armor weapons, 1,400 stingers, 108 M888 triple seven howitzers with 220,000 shells, four high Mars, 121 Phoenix Ghost and 700 switchblade drones, 200 armored anti-personnel carriers, several hundred Humvee vehicles, 20 Soviet made, that should be MI, MI 17 helos, that's a BBC error, uh, 7,200 firearms with 50 million rounds, and three counter battery radar systems. But if we analyze this, we get a very different picture from what the public will probably pick up from the BBC reporting, because the Javelins, despite the sheer number pumped into Ukraine, have not performed well. And in any case, the Russians aren't running a battle allowing these things to be used as the West thought they would. Many of them are old and have not functioned properly. Uh, we've got the 20,000 light anti-armor weapons, uh, these are showing little effect on the battlefield simply because the uh, Russians are not again playing the battle that the uh, West and NATO anticipated. So they're not putting much of their armor in the way of these light weapons. Uh, the Stingers have been poor performers, contrary to all the hype pushed in. In any case, there's little battlefield effect because the Russian Air Force is not flying uh, the sorts of attack patterns that these uh, stingers are designed to deal with. So there, there is no use for them at the moment. The howitzers, well, too little, too late. And all of the qualified military commentators, 
My background is Navy, so I'm being very careful here, but people who are fully qualified in combat um, in, the, in the army system are saying too little too late. Many of them already destroyed. They're not going to change the battle. The HIMARS systems, well, the same thing applies. It's a handful of systems. This is not going to make any difference. But the BBC, of course, doesn't say that even the Americans weren't brave enough to give the Ukrainians the long-range systems because they were too worried that uh, a pretty mad Ukrainian government system would be firing these deep into Russia. More drones, well, they're not going to work because at the moment the losses of drones on a daily basis are somewhere around 10 to 15. So in a few weeks, these drones will also be gone, and that is due to the quality of the Russian uh, air defence system. Uh, the light anti-personnel carriers are really irrelevant because Ukraine can't reposition uh, due to uh, Russian air superiority. Same applies to the Humvees. This is a little bit of stuffing and nonsense. The helicopters, uh, which are um, designed to carry cargo, are too few, too late, and their chances of surviving in the war environment at present are low. Uh, the small arms are not going to make any difference to the progress of the war because Russia is largely killing Ukrainian soldiers by shelling, and the, the small arms are going to make no difference to that. And the counter-battery radars, the same thing, too little, too late. So when we do a more detailed analysis on what the BBC is saying, this is really hype. But one thing it's going to do is clearly cause the deaths of tens of thousands more Ukrainians. So we'll finish off the comment on the section because uh, at the bottom here it says Kiev has repeatedly asked for more weapons to fight off attacks by Moscow attacks which are being better supplied given their close proximity to Russia's border. Well, we just put a note in there to say, didn't the BBC say that Russia's logistics were hopeless and failing? Well, apparently not. So the, the line is changing. But what we do know is Ukraine's a bottomless pit now for Western weapons. And the, the movement of the fighting means it really doesn't matter how much more of these weapons the West pushes in, they're going to end up destroyed uh, as the Russians move forward. But um, on social media, uh, a lot of very positive reporting of what the Ukrainians are up to. Um, I'm just putting this on screen, but the message constantly put across by Ukraine is that they're moving forward when the reality of all the reports on the battlefield is that that is clearly not happening. So where does um, Alinsky stand with this? Well, of course, this man is not really declaring the truth of the matter. So let's condense it down to the most simple facts we can. Uh, the area of Ukraine is approximately 233,062 uh, uh, square miles. Russian-controlled territory is 20% of that, and uh, Zelensky is happy to declare that. Uh, that comes out at 46,612 square miles. The size of England is 50,337 square miles, so we can see that the Russians have virtually taken territory the size of England, and they've done that in just 100 days um, using minimal forces for this type of uh, uh, battlefield 
and causing minimal civilian casualties. Now, people might think that last comment is very hard to understand, but if you look at the way the West has conducted wars with very vicious carpet bombing of anybody on the ground, uh, what, what Russia is doing is very uh, calculated. And the Russians have achieved all this in 100 days against widespread layered prepared dug-in Ukrainian defences with often what are described as suicidal defenders because rather than surrender, they are fighting to the death. But of course, it isn't Russia just fighting Ukraine because Ukraine is fully backed by the US, UK and NATO forces. That includes special forces on the ground plus all of the intelligence uh, capability, command and control, drones and weapons. So uh, there we are. In 100 days, Russia has effectively taken a country the size of England, but the BBC doesn't want to talk about this. So uh, let's um, just uh, bring in Zelensky here and remind people of uh, what this man is about. Um, here we are, selected by the US, UK, sold to the EU, uh, groomed to fight until the last Ukrainian. And of course, the propaganda machine that he's using in Ukraine was trained by the BBC's own BBC Media Action Charity. And what is he saying at the moment? We will win when the last remaining Ukrainian dies. And clearly he doesn't care whether that's in the millions or not. And uh, I'll just add this uh, one in here because, of course, we've been hearing Slava Ukraini. But um, yesterday, as I drove in the car, uh, Radio 4 was delighted to tell me that, of course, it was now Slava Boris Johnson uh, because uh, Zelensky was saying, oh, he's a great ally. I'm so pleased that he's still prime minister. But we're going to say, of course, it was Boris Johnson who, uh, who was the man uh, telling Zelensky that peace was not an option and he should continue to fight on. Uh, you had a little bit of uh, video? Well, we did. We're, we'll just play that just to... There's our report and our analysis on what's happening in Ukraine. This is how the BBC sells Zelensky at the moment. У нас складна ситуація на Сході, ситуація на Сєвєродонецьку, ви знаєте, ми тримаємо ситуацію. Саме тримаємо ситуацію. Їх більш, вони потужніші, але тим не менш, я думаю, що у нас є всі шанси боротися в цьому напрямку. 10% населення там є, 10-15% населення там залишилось, те, що ми розуміємо. Тим не менш, в Лисичанській приблизно така сама ситуація, хоча коли ти їдеш по Лисичанську, відчуття, що там нікого немає. Це також я вам кажу, я навіть не знаю, де вони, їх немає. На вулицях немає людей, окрім наших військових, і де-не-де з'явиться одна там якась людинка. Ну так, не бачу, людей немає. Ось таке є відчуття. So we left the, the original soundtrack in there because it gives you a feel of the style of delivery. But uh, what does Zelensky say? Well, we're having a bit of trouble in the Donbass, but we think we can, we can succeed on that access. Uh, access. And is this, is this true? No, of course it's not, because at the moment the Russians continue to move forward and will do so. 
So this is not true. But I was fascinated, Mike, when he says that people have disappeared and he's no idea where they've gone. Yeah. They, they just, one day they were there, the next day they've just all, gone. They've just gone. Yeah. Uh, of course, who is there in, in those positions? Ukrainian troops. And one of the reasons that uh, a lot of those people have gone in the Donbass is because the Ukrainian troops have been bombarding them for years. So uh, BBC not telling the truth, I think. Um, well, Brian has just given uh, a, an update on what's going on in the war. Well, uh, General Sir Richard Barnes was giving an update this morning on mainstream press. Mm. Uh, let's just have a look and see what he had to say, and then we can laugh at it afterwards. Okay, Russian Defence Minister um, saying that Russia has now liberated 97% of the Luhansk region. Um, first of all, do you think that can be true? And secondly, if that is the case, does that then lend itself to the argument that you just uh, put forward, which means that there could be a pause? So I think we're at a, we're at a very telling point now. Uh, Russia occupies about 20% of Ukraine and 97% of Luhansk and, and close on at least 85% of the Donbass region as a whole. And the absolute key question is, when Russia feels that it has gone as far in the Donbass as it, as it needs to go, and it, it is fighting this brutal, grinding battle, expending vast amounts of ammunition and casualties to get there, has it run out of steam or does it simply decide to pause before coming back elsewhere this year? And we won't know the answer to that for some time. On balance, it looks like in the Donbass, they're running out of steam. So General Sir Richard Barron's claim is that Russia has run out of steam. Brian, uh, that is a laughable statement. Uh, but aside from anything else, in order to get a, a view of how much credibility you should give this man, we should remember that he is best buddies with Chris Donnelly of the Institute for Statecraft and obviously uh, the Integrity Initiative and uh, that organisation funded by the British Foreign Commonwealth and, uh, and well, the Foreign Commonwealth Office at the time uh, was uh, pushing uh, disinformation uh, against Russia, anti-Russian disinformation for years uh, through the British mainstream press with the full cooperation of the British mainstream press as well. Um, so uh, we've got to listen to what he says for sure, but then we've got to put it in the context of what he is. And, and what the real message that he wants to get across. And of course, the message he's putting across is the Russians are incompetent. They can't really fight this war. They're losing. Uh, but the reality is we do not have, uh, just to give one angle to this, we do not have any senior British military officers with any experience on the battlefield of fighting the type of war which uh, Russia and Ukraine are having to fight. So it's a completely disingenuous commentary, but to suggest that they have no idea whether the Russians are, continue, are going to continue to move forward is utterly laughable because the Russian tactics haven't changed on the battlefield for the last couple of months. And that is they continue to take ground. They then have a pause, they reposition, and then they move forward and they are adopting the slow, steady style they are in order to counter uh, in many cases, the help which uh, the US, UK, EU and NATO have been giving to the Ukrainian side. So I find his comment utterly, utterly crass. And it would be really wonderful to question that man on what evidence he's got for making these particular claims. Now, Monday, Sean uh, Michel, the president of the European Council, one of the three Europe EU uh, presidents, because the EU needs three presidents, 
uh, was speaking at the UN Security Council. Uh, well, was he speaking or was he lying? Let's have a look at uh, the first clip here of what he had to say. The Kremlin is using food supplies as a stealth missile against developing countries. The dramatic consequences of Russia's war are spilling over across the globe, and this is driving up food prices, pushing people into poverty and destabilizing entire regions. And Russia is solely responsible for this food crisis, Russia alone, despite the Kremlin's campaign of lies and disinformation. I've seen it with my own eyes a few weeks ago in Odessa. Millions of tons of grain and wheat stuck in containers and ships because of Russian warships in the Black Sea and because of Russia's attack on transport infrastructure. And it is Russian tanks, Russian bombs and mines that are preventing Ukraine from planting and harvesting. The Kremlin is also targeting grain storages and stealing grain in Ukraine while shifting the blame on others. This is cowardly, this is propaganda, pure and simple propaganda. I mean, I just, I just find that utterly despicable, a uh, pack of lies. Uh, and uh, as a result of what he said there, the Russian ambassador walked out. Um, which leads us into the second part of this. Let's have a listen. Let's get to the facts. The EU has no sanctions on the agricultural sector in Russia. Zero. And even our sanctions on the Russian transport sector do not go beyond our EU borders. You may leave the room. Maybe it's easier not to listen to the truth, the ambassador. They do not prevent Russian fleet vessels, our sanctions, from carrying grain, food, or fertilizers to developing countries. The EU, on the contrary, is doing all we can to help Ukraine's agricultural exports and to support Ukraine's agricultural sector for the coming season. So no mention of the fact that the ports, uh, the, the, the Black Sea is mined by the Ukrainians, that their ships sunk uh, as a hazard to the navigation in the Black Sea. Uh, and that uh, they're doing nothing to, to shift that stuff. Uh, but that then, uh, his sentiments there echoed this morning by the lovely Ursula von der Leyen, who tweeted this out, the Russian invasion of Ukraine reverberates around the world, affecting the lives of millions, threatening in particular food security worldwide. Our response must be clear and determined. She lied. Well, let's just have a look at uh, uh, Bloomberg from, uh, well, this is the 14th of April and nothing has changed since then. Russian grain still flows to top customers despite war inflating costs, is the headline. Uh, several weeks after the invasion of Ukraine, Russia is still exporting grain to some of its biggest customers, uh, even as shipping costs soar. Uh, and they provide a handy graph uh, showing uh, that that was for the month of April alone. Uh, 40 million tons is uh, Russia's expected uh, uh, export for this current season. Uh, and uh, as you can see, they're exporting a huge amount to Turkey, to Egypt, to Iran, Algeria, Sudan, and China. Uh, they're the top five. Um, so is Charles Michel just lying through his teeth? Yes, he is. Yes. It's propaganda. He's lying in order to put out propaganda of what the true situation is. No okay. question of it. Okay, well, it, it got worse. So let's listen to the next clip. Women, peace, security. 
This is a critical and timely subject. Two years ago, Secretary General Guterres called to end violence, both on the battlefield and in homes. Yet as we speak, we hear reports of Russian forces wielding sexual violence as a weapon of war. Sexual violence is a war crime, a crime against humanity, a tactic of torture, terror, and repression. Shameful acts in a shameful war. And this must be exposed to the light of day and prosecuted without impunity. And that's why we will host together with UN Women, Dr. Mukwele Foundation and Nadia's initiative, a sudden conference on women in conflict in just a few days in Brussels. I sincerely hope we can build momentum and step up our collective efforts to seriously address this critical issue. So the accusation is that the Russians are, are using uh, rape as a weapon of war, effectively. Well, what is the truth of this? I'm not going to comment on uh, the Russian allegations in particular, but what Charles Michel is ignoring 100% is the documented evidence of rape as a weapon of war being used by the Ukrainian forces over the last number of years. Uh, so this is the report on human rights situation in Ukraine, 16th of February to the 15th of May, uh, 2016. Let's choose a couple of paragraphs from this. Two of the documented cases took place in or around uh, Adivka in April and May 2015. A male detainee who was subject to torture and, force, uh, and forced to confess to his involvement in the armed groups on camera, this is the uh, Donetsk armed groups, uh, or the, the Donbass armed groups rather, was subsequently threatened with sexual violence, told that he would be handcuffed, handcuffed and raped by a homosexual man. Two women from the same family, aged 18 and 41, were tortured and repeatedly threatened with sexual violence. Other documented cases appear to be linked to the military presence, this Ukrainian military presence in densely populated civilian areas such as towns near the contact line and, with, and general impunity. A man with a mental disability was subject to cruel treatment, rape and other forms of sexual violence by eight to ten members of the Azov and Donbass battalions in August to September 2014. The victim's health subsequently deteriorated and he was hospitalized in a psychiatric hospital. Uh, on the 9th of December 2015 in Donetsk, a man was beaten and raped in Saizo number five. He was taken outside for his daily walk where he was confronted by a, a group of masked riot police who hit his legs and back twice with a baton and insulted him. Following the assault, the police stripped him down completely and forced him to bend over in front of them. He described standing naked in front of the camouflaged men in below zero degrees Celsius temperature. The riot police mocked and insulted him and subjected him to a rectal examination. The victim named the perpetrators and believes he was subjected to such treatment in retaliation for applying to be transferred to government-controlled territory to serve the remainder of his sentence. Uh, and so it goes on. Uh, OSCE supplemented Supplementary Human Dimension meeting April 2016, War Crimes of the Armed Forces and Security Forces of Ukraine, uh, Torture and Inhumane Treatment. Uh, the captured women were frequently raped in bold. Uh, here is what uh, Yuri uh, Novots, not Novot, sorry, Novotsev, uh, one of the torture victims, says about Ukrainian soldiers from Western Ukraine uh, beating up and raping a captured woman in the room next to the one where he was being held. One night I heard a woman who was being beaten cry. Those young soldiers aged from 18 to 25 were speaking Ukrainian, but with the same accent as they, as they have in Western Ukraine, meaning some of them words were Polish. 
then these youngsters uh, started insulting her. Uh, that is, they were ripping her, beating her and laughing like horses. Uh, that was not a laugh of a human being, meaning they were not either high or drunk. They enjoyed beating and raping her very much. As to what exactly happened there, I learned later that uh, later when that woman told me herself, just the things I heard were insulting for me as a person. So the point is, it has been documented that uh, Ukrainians uh, have been using uh, rape as a weapon of war since the 2014 so-called revolution. Uh, and that has received no criticism from Charles Michel or the EU or the UK or the United States. Um, and uh, so uh, once again, we have absolute hypocrisy. Uh, and the question is, uh, when this is documented, um, I would like to see similar documentation from the United Nations or the, or the OSCE of any uh, allegations against Russian uh, servicemen uh, in any of the activity that they have been involved in up to this point. Yeah. Um, Debbie, as a woman, would you like to comment, because we're on some pretty serious subjects here, but the hypocrisy of the BBC and the EU is just breathtaking over this subject of who the bad guys are. Um, I, I'm, whenever the BBC is mentioned, um, I can feel myself getting stressed. What I was um, pleased to see um, and other people may have seen it as well, is that um, some news channels are very much coming out against the BBC now and um, speaking up about the, the propaganda and the misinformation that they're putting out. So I do think the message is getting out there and more and more people need to be aware that the BBC is just a complete, it's lies. Everything that the BBC, I tend to think of opposite and it's wicked because people still believe it. Yeah, uh, yeah, of course, and this is the danger of the sort of propaganda that they're putting out. Well, whilst those difficult subjects are not covered by the BBC, as I heard on Radio 4 yesterday, the BBC desperate to push out the idea that it's only those good people working in Ukraine for the very best of the poor, suppressed Ukrainian people. And uh, this is the story that I heard narrated on Radio 4 yesterday. It's Ukrainian war. Uh, why I risk my life to provide in Ukraine. Now there's uh, aid in Ukraine. Why I risk my life to provide, sorry, aid in Ukraine. I'm going to say um, absolutely no disrespect for the three young people that were interviewed because clearly they've put themselves in a very dangerous position and in order to help people, and I'm going to take this at face value. What was nauseating was the fact that Radio 4 uh, narrated uh, coverage of this story and I believe the lady doing it is um, an Irish reporter called uh, Aria Orla, Orla Garland. Okay thank you for that Mike and uh, what was incredible was she delivered the story at a pace approximately suitable for a three-year-old child so I would really have to slow down my reports for people today in order to get over the wonderful work. It was that bad. So we had a story, we'll say three young people would take it at face value, they were genuine, they were there to help, but the BBC tried to dramatize this in a way which was truly appalling. So if you get an opportunity to have a listen to that Radio 4 report, please do. 
Okay, uh, a number of mainstream outlets reporting the fact that uh, two captured Britons, uh, Aidan Aslan and Sean Pinner, are appearing in, well, it's being described as a Russian separatist court. Of course, it's not a Russian anything court. This is a court which has been convened in uh, the Donbass. Uh, and uh, so two Britons, they say, captured by Russian forces in Ukraine, have appeared in court in territory held by pro-Russian rebels. Uh, Aidan Aslan, 28, from Nottinghamshire, and Sean Pinner, 48, from Bedfordshire, are being held by in the so-called Donetsk People's Republic. Uh, they're reportedly charged with being mercenaries, but their families say they were in the Ukraine military. Uh, it's feared that the court, which is uh, not internationally recognised, could pass the death penalty if it convicts them. So uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, my, my thoughts are how would people feel if there had been war on the scale that we see in Ukraine in England? We've described the fact that it's affected territory the size of England. And we had foreign mercenaries who'd come to England to kill people for payment, uh, for receiving a payment. How would we wish to treat them? Would it would be with love and kindness or would people be saying these people came into our country as foreigners, they were there to kill, therefore they may, must face the full force of the law. I think if we put it in those circumstances, Mike, everything changes. So um, we will see what happens with these. I, I think the only word we can describe is very silly young men who thought that they were going to go for some form of military holiday when they went to Ukraine. But ultimately, they've discovered something far more serious is going on. Well, while all the distraction of uh, Boris's leadership uh, was going on, uh, Priti Patel was uh, back in Parliament yesterday to push uh, for this piece of legislation, the National Security Bill. Uh, and thanks to the, the people that have uh, uh, been talking about this, because this is a vital piece of legislation and we need to pay attention to it. So this is a government bill uh, and uh, it was getting its second reading yesterday. Um, it has passed that second reading. We'll show you, well, we'll show you an image of how many people were concerned about this, how many MPs were concerned about this in the House of Commons. So there they are, uh, about 30 of them maybe at most. Uh, but this is a, a pretty horrible piece of legislation. It replaces parts of the Official Secrets Act, or it will do if it, becomes, uh, uh, if it passes. Um, and one of the things it will do is it will create an offence to disclose leaked information that could prejudice what are called safety or interests of Britain, the safety or the interests of Britain, um, and so, for example, uh, if this legislation had been in place um, and bearing in mind that the uh, uh, emails which exposed the integrity initiative um, were leaked or hacked, whichever way it was, um, this would potentially make it illegal for a journalist to report those emails. Um, it, uh, another part of the bill, uh, well, if you remember, one of the recent pieces of legislation that we've been talking about uh, was the Covert Intelligence, Intelligence Sources Act. It became an act uh, which effectively make it, made it legal for agents of various government agencies uh, to commit illegal acts uh, with permission of the UK government. Um, and uh, well, they are now part of this bill will now allow foreign agents, uh, so agents of the UK government that are operating in foreign countries, to commit illegal acts on behalf of the British government as well. Um, and uh, uh, so this is massively dangerous. It's dangerous for free speech. It's dangerous for, uh, for what's going on in, in other countries. 
Um, there's much more to it. There are police aspects to this. There are espionage aspects to it as one of these all-encompassing bills. Um, but uh, it very much puts journalists in particular at risk uh, if a whistleblower comes with, uh, with information to them uh, or if uh, uh, emails are handed to them from an anonymous source. For example, and there's only there's, there's got to be only one reason why you want this type of legislation, and that is because you're getting very worried that your dirty deeds are, are likely to be exposed or are being exposed. Well, so I, I'll just add to uh, we we we've seen the comments about Ukraine, but of course the UK government involved in torture over a great number of years. But of course, with the holier than thou attitude of the British government, we don't want to discuss that, but we want to point the finger at other countries. And woe betide anybody who exposes what's really happening in UK. Well, indeed. Now, they're, of course, uh, justifying this because it's all about creating new measures for law enforcement and intelligence agents to deter, detect and disrupt their f the full range of modern day state threats. So they're saying this is all about uh, dealing with uh, intervention or uh, interference from uh, foreign states, which of course in this case means Russia and China. That's the justification for it, but it's uh, it's actually much worse than that. Um, okay, we'll, we'll cover this more in, in more detail in the coming days. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, you would be very welcome as uh, a community member there, and uh, that would help us out immensely, as would uh, picking something up from the UK Column shop. Uh, but in any case, please do um, share our material on the various platforms. Um, delighted to say that this weekend uh, we will be hosting once again uh, a symposium uh, held by the Doctors for COVID Ethics. Um, you can see the speakers uh, on screen there at the moment. Um, they're going to be looking at mRNA vaccines, which they describe as a serious threat to mankind. They're looking at uh, the history of crime and abuse in medicine, uh, looking at the threat to sovereignty and democracy, the centralization of power, that's World Health Organization's uh, treaties and so on. Uh, and then to finish off at the end of the day, they'll be uh, live streaming uh, Andrew Wakefield's latest uh, film, Infertility. Um, so that uh, begins uh, at, on June the 11th, that's this Saturday, uh, and uh, we'll have more details on that on Friday. Uh, so let's move on then to this. Chatham House, um, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, pushed this article out. Uh, today, the, mil the militarization of Russian polar politics. Um, so the polar region, uh, very uh, key area. Uh, and uh, what are they saying here? Russia's politics for the polar regions overlap uh, and are increasingly becoming uh, militarized. And the first question is, why would Russia be militarizing uh, the polar regions? Uh, could it be anything to do with the fact that uh, Britain, the United States, the EU are saying that as uh, and have been pushing this narrative that is uh, a key strategic area for years now. So uh, the Defence Arctic Strategy launched in 2018 uh, and Gavin Williamson at the time, uh, Russia with more submarines operating under the ice and ambitions to build over 100 facilities in the Arctic are staking a claim in militarising the region. So the, the narrative that of militarisation actually has been going on for years. Uh, and uh, then the Arctic Council took place in 2019, and you can see Sergei Lavrov was there, and so was uh, Mike Pompeo. Uh, and uh, was that a positive uh, development? Well, not really, because Pompeo's language was, was like this. The Arctic has become an arena for power and for competition, and the eight Arctic states must adapt to this new future. 
he said, this is part of a very familiar pattern. Beijing attempts to develop critical infrastructure using Chinese money, Chinese companies, and Chinese workers, in some cases to establish a permanent Chinese security presence. He lied. Uh, and he goes on to say, and then there's Russia. Russia illegally insists other nations request permission to pass through the Northern Sea Route along its coast, expressing territorial ambitions just as violently as it did in Ukraine. So that was in 2019. And then move on to 2020. And we've got Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the Defence Procurement Minister for the UK. The UK will not stand by if peace in the Arctic region is threatened. And then we've got all the various Arctic exercises, all the NATO exercises that have been taking place over the last number of years, almost every month. There's another NATO exercise in the Arctic. Uh, let's have a look at what Ben Wallace was saying. The Arctic is becoming an area of increasing military competition and the security of the region is directly linked to our national security. Um, and uh, we've got and more exercises. Royal Marines carry out uh, fjord recce mission in huge Arctic exercises with NATO allies. Uh, then with Ben Wallace heading over to Finland and Sweden to get NATO expanded nicely in the Arctic. Uh, then we have uh, the UK's defence contribution in the high north. Uh, the Arctic has historically been an area of low tension and we wish it to remain so. Well, that's a lie because we've just shown how much of a lie that is. However, melting sea ice in the Arctic brings threats as well as, as, well as opportunities. Russia is taking an increasingly militarised approach to the region and China is supporting its proposed polar silk road with a range of infrastructure and capabilities that have dual use potential. Dual use potential, keep, an eye, keep uh, that in your mind. As the region becomes increasingly accessible, threats from everywhere around the globe could spill over to the Arctic. Uh, and then Alex, uh, a week or so ago, new commando forces lead Britain's military and Arctic operations. Then yesterday, we were talking about exercise ball tops in the Arctic once again. And today, uh, we've got British and Finnish fighter jets conducting joint exercises in the Arctic. So, Brian, why would the Russians be concerned about this and why would they be militarizing uh, their position? Well, because when, when one side takes an aggressive stance, uh, you either try and ignore it, but it was, you've got to counter it. Uh, what, what I, what's in my head as I watch this lot is we've got the, Ukraine, the situation in Ukraine continuing. What is the West doing? The West is already on to the next stage of where can we militarize so we're, we're just told about threat after threat after threat. The militarization is, is the game. We're not looking at rebuilding the infrastructure of UK or dealing uh, with uh, or rebuilding industry or getting the economy going. We've got, we've got a, a political group running the country that seem to be focused on a war machine. Absolutely. I, I don't know how else you describe it. So let's come back to this Chatham House report. And there's their nice uh, graphic that goes with it. Uh, and uh, well, let's see what they say. In the Arctic, Russia's main threat perception relates to the fear of encirclement by NATO and its allies. I wonder why. Uh, in the context of Russia's renewed war against Ukraine since February 2022, the Finnish and Swedish applications to join NATO and the likely expansion of the alliance are a case in point. In Antarctica, Russia's posture relates to protecting its national interests from territorial claims over the continent by other, uh, so that they're even bringing the Antarctic into this as well. Uh, now then, we've got Moscow uh, views the Arctic as a strategic continuum stretching from the North Atlantic to the North Pacific. Uh, the Kremlin's priorities are to impose costs on other countries' access to Russia's European Arctic, uh, protect the Northern Sea Route, defend North Pole approaches, remove tensions from the region and extend Russia's military capabilities beyond the Arctic zone of the Russian Federation. 
Uh, do you have much of a problem with that, Brian? Not in response to what we're actually See seeing, yes. um, seeing UK and the West do. So, uh, but it's it's a similar situation to what's caused the problem in Ukraine. The Russians eventually said, "No, we are not going to accept this build up, this military build up, getting closer and closer to our borders." So it's happened in the East. We've now got it happening. Uh, the West doing the same trick. It would appear in the Arctic. Okay, so let's look at the last little clip from this. Uh, Russia is rebuilding its military capabilities and modernizing its regional military infrastructure by using a double dual approach. Uh, Arctic infrastructure is being used for civilian and military purposes, brackets dual use, while Russia is also blurring the lines between offensive and defensive intent. So let's consider this for a second. The accusation is that Russia is heading towards dual use uh, and uh, the, that it's... Uh, blurring the lines between offensive and defensive. Well, let me tell you that this idea of dual use, this idea of civilian and military, this began with European defense. 2015, here we are, European Defense Matters, Jens Stoltenberg and Federica Mogherini at the European Defense Agency, absolutely pushing this narrative of dual use and of the merging of civilian and military infrastructures, followed up by Rose Gottmuller, uh, who's spe speaking in 2017, saying we need to break down the silos between military and civilian institutions. Um, then we've got Ben Wallace saying, I'm a soldier. I was always taught the best part of defense is offense. So it should co no, come as no surprise then that the UK's integrated operating con concept uh, is offensive rather than defensive. And let's just remember what they said. The central idea of the integrated operating concept is to drive the conditions and tempo of strategic activity rather than responding to the actions of others. So that's saying we're going to go on the offensive. We're going to cause events to happen rather than wait for them to happen and react to them. So if we're accusing, uh, or at least Chatham House is accusing Russia of doing the things that the UK, the EU and NATO are doing. And as for this dual use issue, let's come back to that for a second. Let's remember that the UK government brought this satellite company OneWeb out of bankruptcy. It's owned by the UK government effectively. It's launching these uh, uh, very low Earth, Earth orbit uh, satellites, these clusters similar to uh, Elon Musk's SpaceX clusters. Um, and if we remember what uh, Alex Sharma, who was the business secretary at the time in 2020, saying that uh, this is great news because we're going to connect people worldwide by giving them internet access using these, these UK-backed broadband satellites, right? Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Ben Wallace was saying, uh, he was saying, we'll ensure that we embed dual use at the heart of our capability management processes, right? So it just, you know, I, I'm really struggling with this, Brian, because we constantly fire these accusations at Russia um, accusing them of doing the things that we are doing. We are, these are the policies that we are pursuing. And these are the policies that are bringing the world to the brink of global conflict. But the accusations are fired out and we're expected, not, expected to not criticize that in any way. Or if we do criticize the actions of our own governments, then that means we're taking a pro-Russian position. Uh, it is incredible. And there's some real passion in UK column news today because this situation is becoming untenable. The sheer hypocrisy of Boris Johnson's government and the fact that the warmongering is just coming to the surface is easily visible. Um, Debbie, you um, have watched a lot of the Ukrainian reports from the UK column. And I know that on occasions uh, you felt that 
Uh, yes, this information needs to come out, but uh, we, we've also got other subjects to cover. I'm just going to say, when you see the sheer scale of the plans in UK, the US and NATO, which are all about war, they're not about developing economies, um, it seems to me that we have to stay very much focused on what this militarisation of UK is all about. But what's your response? Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, you know, for me, Ukraine is the UK in June rain. And I, I tend to focus in on the Ukraine, uh, on, on, on the UK. Um, but, you know, saying that, just speaking about Ben Wallace, wasn't he the chap that got pranked? on that uh, phone call and said that actually the UK was running out of any kind of military hardware to send to Ukraine and, and and everything seems to be blamed on Ukraine. The fuel shortages seem to be blamed on Ukraine. So I, I completely understand that this is all interlinked and, and we absolutely have to keep our eyes on the ball, especially as the mainstream media seem to have dropped Ukraine completely almost from the news. Well, with the, with the serious reporting, uh, because they're looking basically to see how they can rebrand it uh, so they know what they're going to be reporting when Ukraine finally loses. But the tragedy, of course, is, is it isn't Russia or Ukraine. It's the tragedy of all the people fighting and dying in that war, which the West could stop overnight if they simply said uh, to Zelensky, we're not giving you any more weapons you are going to sit down and negotiate with the Russians and we'll support you in those negotiations. That would be a very different stance. But of course, the British government and the BBC wants the violence and wants the killing. Well, let's change subject. Um, Debbie, you've got an article which is uh, up on the UK column. I believe that went up yesterday. When is enough enough? Do no harm. And in a complimentary way, there's also an article by Ian Davis, which is entitled Alex Mitchell and his fight for vaccine-induced uh, thrombocytopenia sufferers. Hope I've pronounced that correctly. So, Debbie, tell us about your article and uh, any comments you got on, on, on Ian's article, if indeed you've had time to have a look at that. Well, I confess I didn't know that Ian's article was up, so I haven't read it. But I'm sure, as always, with all of Ian's articles, they are spot on and, and I shall thoroughly enjoy reading it. Um, my article was in response to Professor Munir Mohammed's response to me and other people, it would seem, um, with regards to serious adverse reactions. So rather than just email Professor Munir Mohammed back, I thought it would be more appropriate to write an article um, and then hopefully other people might like to forward it to him because he didn't ask answer any of my questions. Um, his language in his reply is very suspicious, as, as, as you'll read, um, and I have a lot of questions for him. So if anybody wants to forward it on to Professor Mohammed, his email address is munir, M-U-N-I-R, P at liverpool.ac.uk. So maybe we'll get some answers from him, but I, I find what he wrote in his letter to me shocking, um, offensive. To every single person that's suffering from a serious adverse reaction and and he is the head honcho in pharmacovigilance you know he is the the head man and we we really do need to be concentrating on taking getting him to to answer our questions and to take responsibility 
and, and order an immediate investigation and stoppage of all medicines that seem to be causing so many serious adverse reactions immediately. Okay, uh, Debbie, thank you for that. And I'd just add that you, you have personally been doing so much work to challenge the authorities on what they're saying and what they say they're doing. And of course, what is needed is many people to also be challenging them. So if our viewers and listeners have a look at that article on the UK Column website and they agree with what, what you are essentially saying, then what do we think sh uh, should be happening? We think more people should be getting in contact and making their own comment and demanding answers. It's the numbers of people that have the power to change what's happening. Now, you wanted to get refocused back onto SPY B, which of course was uh, mentioned quite frequently during the COVID-19 pandemic, since has dropped a little bit out of public sight. Um, I'll just call up some of the people here. Well, first of all, SPY B, if you don't know, the Independent Scientific Pandemic Insights Group on Behaviours. Uh, some very interesting people uh, listed on this. And if you follow the list through, you then come to another group called SPY-M. Um, what are you picking up on, on uh, bringing SPY-B and SPY-M back into the public view, Debbie? Well, you know, despite what everybody says, it's not over. The behavioralists and the behavioral scientists are still at it. And I just wanted to highlight really mainly Spy B, because as you can see, Susan, Professor Susan Mickey, uh, who I've spoken about a lot before, who heads the Spy B team, her husband, Robert Weston, Professor Robert Weston, also on the Spy B team, and he's funded by Pfizer. Uh, cancer um, research, etc. But that's another story. But anyway, Susan Mickey, who has earned herself uh, the formidable nickname of Stalin's nanny, um, she was spied on a train. Um, and I think you might have got a slide of her um, on the train. Just let's remember that this is um, COVID guidance too, that's um, uh, suddenly disappeared. It's all gone. So I'm not quite sure why we're seeing her on the train in a mask and it's not just an ordinary mask she seems to be very proud of it but i don't think she got the memo that the government have actually withdrawn their covid guidance and and now you only need to try to stay at home if you have covid you there's no there's no uh, mandate on having to stay at home so i'm not sure whether susan got the message or not so i couldn't resist but to tweet her back masks. I'm pleased to wear mine to protect myself and others. I don't mind being in a tiny minority or even, even the only one and I hope you don't mind uh, and I hope you don't either. We don't have to follow social norms. Is she actually following a social norm right? Well anyway <laughs> I don't know. So um, you, you tweeted back and said I do object actually when dirty masks get swept into my garden by rain I'm wondering where your logic comes from. Oh yes, we forget you're an expert in altruism and costly signaling, yawn. <laughs> well, that obviously hit hard, <laughs> Debbie, because the response from the good professor was this, uh, you're blocked. Um, so how did you feel about that? I kind of took it as a badge of honor, actually. I, I believe Susan Mickey has been blocking a lot of people 
But I mean, it's hilarious. I mean, what does she think she's doing? FP3 mask. This isn't just a normal face covering. I mean, honestly, uh, this is Stalin's nanny here. I mean, what? It's ridiculous. Yeah, I had to label this one the eyes had it because I did find those eyes rather penetrating. They didn't give me a warm, um, loving human feeling. But uh, anyway, that was the eyes. We're not advertising those particular masks. We're just saying that it wasn't any old mask that she was wearing. She was into £5.80 worth, apparently, of non-valved FFP3 mask. Mm. So that's the real deal, apparently, if you want to keep viruses away. Um, but a conservative woman who we've uh, often covered because they've been pushing out some very good <laughs> material. And uh, we've got um, this one here, which you've mentioned. Stalin's nanny says we must be masked forever. It's not a mask she needs, but a gag. So we have to agree with that headline. And uh, they are pointing out to the audience once again that we should perhaps pay attention to Professor, Professor Susan Mickey because of her membership of the Communist Party of Britain. Um, is she the right person to be advising the government from that basis alone? I'm not so sure. No. <laughs> right, well, <laughs> concise answer, right. <laughs> okay, thank you for that. Now, um, I'm keen to get on to some statistics about how the public views things, but just before we get there, tell us about this one, ICANN, legal update, COVID-19, vaccine manufacturers fail to properly investigate adverse events. And there's some reports that this organization's pushed out. Yeah, this is interesting because the manufacturers are saying, well, we're not getting the information about serious adverse reactions. So, you know, but, but we know from speaking, I've spoken to many people who are suffering from serious adverse reactions who are sending the reports in direct to the manufacturers. However, it would appear that the manufacturers are making no attempt to find out about uh, what's actually happening with serious um, adverse reactions because there have been no freedom of information <laughs> submitted. So clearly they don't care. So we, we need to be aware, I think, more than anything that, you know, they're obfuscating at every single door that we knock on. They're, they're, they're not interested and they're lying. Pharmaceutical companies, regulators, you name it, everybody is lying. Okay, um, we got some comments here on this particular one, which is, uh, we just read these out because it sets the scene. Unfortunately, as the experiences of many vaccine injured individuals have proven, these companies do not appear to be adhering to their claims of taking adverse event events to their products seriously. ICANN, however, does and will continue to hold those companies accountable. And uh, the other comment that's been made there, which I think is an important one, it says, for those familiar with these companies' histories, the results will not be all that surprising. Based on the FDA's responses so far, two of the three vaccine manufacturers did not submit a single FOIA request to the FDA regarding reports of adverse events to their COVID-19 vaccine. But I suppose if we want to be pretty uh, black and white about it, it's probably obvious that country, uh, companies are not going to look for the problems with their own products if they're going to keep the shareholders happy, if they are truly going to look after people's health. Of course, they would. But are you going to dig the dirt 
If that's going to cause trouble with your shareholders, I don't think so. Well, of course, you've got the other thing of the fact that they all expected these serious adverse reactions anyway. So right. we're seeing it now with the Pfizer dump. We're seeing it with all of the manufacturers. They expected them. So if they expected them, they don't need to be told about them because they know they exist, but they just don't want to take responsibility, accountability for it. And as Albert Buller clearly said to uh, Klaus Schwab, the governments are the ones taking the risk, not us. Mm. Yeah. And so we, we've, we've got the companies do not know the safety of their own products and they don't want to find out. Uh, but we are going to push ahead with the vaccine programme for young children. And you've picked up on this. Uh, well, it's a retweet by Neil Oliver. Uh, uh, the original tweet is, this is abhorrent. There is no moral or medical argument to justify this for any child let alone six-month-old babies, a civilization that uses their young as a shield for the elderly deserves to fail. And the headline that they've pushed through is um, from Daily Mail, Pfizer asks FDA to authorize its COVID-19 vaccine for children uh, from six months to four years. And that was actually pushed out on the 2nd of June. So we, we haven't bottomed out safety of vaccines. We know this from from the MHRA in, in UK, but we're going to push those vaccines out to ever younger children. That's the reality, Debbie. It's absolutely wicked. I am, I feel myself shaking. And as I've said many times on here, the go my golden rule and that of any ethical medical professional is that you never experiment on pregnant women, babies, children young children older children you just don't do it it's that simple it's absolutely shocking and we should all all of us be rising up against this tyranny and, and this this absolute demo side is what i'm going to call it yeah okay now this section really fascinates me a few days ago you said to me that you discovered some information that you thought was was truly astonishing because it was a set of statistics, it was do, uh, uh, data uh, where people were taking a look at the public's reaction to the whole of this sort of COVID-19 so-called pandemic and the response. And the organisation which had uh, produced this data is called Parishia. Um, I was fascinated by everything to do with it, particularly the logo for people that find that sort of things interesting. Um, we've also got involved the Policy Institute, King's College London. So this is part of a story that you've regularly talked about, which is whatever direction you go looking at vaccinations, you come back into this sort of golden triangle of the, uh, the big um, British universities. Uh, but here's Parishia. And what is it doing? It's looking at public attitudes towards national governments and other institutions. I'll just bring up a little bit more and then I'll come back over to you for comment. Um, here's some of the young lovelies and we've got to trust them because apparently they're, all, they're going to all be scientists, I would imagine, Mike. Uh, here's the organisation itself. It's an EU funded project investigating public trust in expertise. Our multidisciplinary team seeks to help citizens and policymakers understand trust in science and identify trustworthy expertise. By doing so, we aim to enhance trust 
in a better democratic governance for the future of Europe. Now this, this, is, this is really uh, devious and dangerous because, of course, we've already got the trust narrative in the media, trust the BBC, trust the trust initiatives that are out there, trust the fact checkers, trust all these people, then you don't have to think for yourself. We're bringing trust into uh, uh, medical practitioners, experts. So we've got the media on one hand trusted, and then we've got the experts on the other hand trusted, which the media will use, and we just trust them and we don't have to think. Well, we can just sort of stay at home and yes, just go to sleep. Go yeah. to sleep. But uh, the other bit they talked about, of course, was that they're helping build a better democratic government governance government system and yet we've shown at the start of this news the fact that we 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 haven't got a functioning democracy under boris johnson uh, we've got a cabal running the country but let's follow it through the project says it will use climate change and climate science as a test case so that's uh, that's uh, important i like this this is part of their banner untruths trust in an age of disinformation right trust us parishia because we're going to do the job um let you comment on that and uh, the next slide i know that's coming up is is one of the key uh, people but uh, what caught your eye about this company well what caught my eye about it was as you'll as you'll see as we'll come on to see with some of the language that they're using and some of the um, some of the reports that they're bringing out and some of the people involved and of course as you've quite rightly mentioned you know King's College are involved in this and apparently it's an EU funded project but we've already discussed that we long left the EU didn't we so um, we can see a close collaboration between the EU but King's College London Oxford, Cambridge are the golden universities in the Golden Triangle. So, you know, let's look a bit deeper at, the, at this organisation and their language and at what they're saying and who runs them. Yeah. OK, well, on the who runs them, we, we're, we've only got a short amount of time, obviously, for the news. But this is one of the key uh, people, Stefan Lewandowski, uh, who's a professor of cognitive science at the University of Bristol. His research examines people's memory, decision-making and knowledge structures with a particular emphasis on how people update their memories um, if information they believe turns, turns out to be false. Okay, so this is a pretty serious person. Is he dealing in science or is it partly science and partly psychology? Model? Well, what happens if you've got a media campaign which perhaps persuades people that they didn't quite uh, remember something correctly. Uh, is this part of what he's actually investigating here to work out how to manipulate people's memories of the past? Uh, well, of course, one of, one of the things is if you approach this subject and produce research on it, presumably a good person could use it in the right way and a malicious person could use it for malicious purposes. So we can't label this particular gentleman. We probably shouldn't, but we can raise questions about the safety aspects of what he's doing. So um, in the little box there, if I can just uh, read it, the print's quite small, uh, but he says, this has led him to examine the persistence of misinformation and spread of fake news in society, including conspiracy theories. He's become particularly interested in the variables that determine whether or not people accept scientific evidence, for example, surrounding vaccinations or climate change. So that's quite an easy, uh, interesting uh, angle there. But this is where you wanted to go, Debbie. 
this will be small, but we're going to say to people, you can freeze this on screen. Just give us an overview, if you can, of the sorts of things that they're pointing out in these tables. And also, you said to me, <coughs> excuse me, um, Monday, I think it was, that the more you read of their own statistics, the more you, <coughs> excuse me, the more you felt it was actually demonstrating that it, a life was not going entirely their way. No, I found this very interesting. And, you know, for viewers, have a look at their website, go and look at their studies and uh, see what you think or, or how you interpret their studies, because I found the statistics very interesting. And it would just appear that we're all thinking, or at least many people may be watching are thinking that the British have been very compliant in the whole COVID agenda. And that's what we're being told and that's what's being reported around the world. But it actually turns out, you know, that us British, we are fighting against it and we're not as compliant as they thought we were going to be. Italy were very compliant, but the UK were the second worst compliant country in Europe. And some of the statistics with regards to 5G, how many people were relating COVID and 5G, I felt those were very high statistics. How many people um, didn't trust the government? Um, the screen's a little bit too small, but I think it was one in three or one in four didn't trust the government. So, you know, on the flip side, I think, I mean, I, I question why we have the WEF, the WHA, uh, Bilderberg, the G7 minister, all in all at once. And I'm, I'm just wondering, actually, if they're uh, the other side, as it were, we're struggling and maybe things aren't going quite as well as they thought and maybe we're being told that the British were very very good and very altruistic and very compliant but according to that however you choose to interpret it to me it would appear we're not we're not as compliant and maybe we should be giving ourselves a little bit more credit and patting ourselves on the back. Right so we, we can we can see some evidence to say that somebody somewhere has called for this organization to do the studies that they've they've done because somebody is a bit worried that we haven't we haven't taken on board all of the policies and procedures and things that we've been told in quite the way that they originally thought that's your key point isn't it yeah absolutely i mean why do the study if there's no reason to somebody's flagged up something somewhere and this isn't, you know, there are a number of studies on this website. So somebody's commissioning them for a reason. Why would you commission them if there wasn't some, some concern around it? Yeah, OK, thank you for that. And I'll, I'll say we've, we've only given an overview of those statistics today. But what we will do in future news programmes is pull out some of the detail and make sure we can have a look at the actual figures on screen. And then we can discuss that in a bit more detail. But of course, from a point of common sense, uh, you've been highlighting for a long time that the organisation with responsibility for safety to do with all things to do with pharmaceutical products and vaccines, the MHRA, has simply not been doing its job. And uh, you've um, pulled in on this one here, uh, an MHRA board meeting, um, Tuesday, the 21st of June patient safety is mentioned uh what's what's been going on here well 
please do invite everybody to uh that's the nate at the next mhra board meeting i'm very glad to say that i have um, applied for tickets and i'm successfully on the next mhra board meeting on the 21st of june please share the link they need to know that we're watching them patient safety is on the agenda so if anybody's got questions um i would suggest to submit them to mhra not that MHRA are getting back to me at all. And I've had my complaint in, an official complaint, for over 40 days now. They're meant to respond to me within 18 working days. So clearly the MHRA pretty much have shut down on everybody. So what, what I'm just bringing attention to is that their next board meeting to be held in public is open to members of the public to apply to. So that's the link if anybody wants to join me um, on Zoom. Okay, and what's the latest with regard to the MHRA board meetings? Because a little while ago, it was obvious that after you had challenged them on, on what was being said in some of the board meetings and UK Column had drawn uh, a lot of people's attention to the fact that they could watch the MHRA board meetings on YouTube, all of a sudden it appeared the MHRA stopped posting their board meetings on YouTube. Have they now reverted to making it fully public, Debbie, or are they still working in the dark or working in the weeds because too many people are watching what they're doing? So my hunch is bearing in mind that the MHRA have been broadcasting their board meetings for the last nearly two years now, religiously every single month. Um, the last board meeting that they published on, on YouTube was February. As far as I'm aware, I haven't checked today, but I don't believe that the written minutes for the February board meeting have been put up, despite the MHRA telling me they would be. The March board meeting, if you remember, was cancelled after I applied for tickets and was held in private. Um, and then there was an April board meeting and to which I applied for, and I got on, and I asked questions. I'm still waiting an answer to those questions for the April board meeting. There was no May board meeting, so I'm presuming that they're having these meetings now behind closed doors and just selecting a few to hold in public. So my guess is there's an awful lot going on behind closed doors that we don't know about, but clearly the MHRA um, are busy regulating all sorts of new different drugs that are coming down the line and they're not interested in talking about serious adverse reactions. So if anybody wants to uh, email June Rain direct, her direct email is june.rain with an E on the end at mhra.gov.uk because these people simply have to have pressure kept on them. And, you know, we will be exploring viewers' emails coming up um, hopefully tomorrow and many of our viewers are writing to the MHRA to June Rain and to the Commission for Human Medicines and for that I am super super grateful because as you've always said both of you Mike and Brian we have to keep um, the pressure up all of us it's not just any good me sending emails off everyone needs to do it yeah, excellent. Okay, now we've got an eye on the clock. We're going to finish in, in just a couple of minutes. But uh, you picked up with regard to the MHRA on the crucial difference between efficacy and effectiveness. And uh, uh, people freeze this screen. There's a link through to uh, a YouTube video. 
uh, where it appears the lovely June Rain is discussing this aspect in relation to yellow card. Um, I've, I've got uh, a slide talking about the definition of efficacy, sorry, efficacy and effectiveness. But uh, what, what caught your attention and why is this difference so important? Well, this is, this, is, this is a very important slide for two reasons. And there is another slide on efficacy and effectiveness because June Rain makes it very clear at two minutes in that video that she would be told off if she confused efficacy and effectiveness. Efficacy is to do with what happens on the clinical trial. There you go. I think you've got it got it there. I can't quite read it, Brian, so you might just want to read it out for me just to it says, efficacy is the degree to which the vac a vaccine prevents disease and possibly also transmission under ideal and controlled circumstances compared comparing a vaccinated group with a placebo group. Effectiveness, meanwhile, refers to how well it performs in the real world. Although a vaccine has high efficacy, such as Moderna, so on, uh, then it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to have uh, be effective uh, is basically what that says. Right. So by choosing which word they use at which particular time, the MHRA can quietly manipulate or even deceive the public in, in their belief as to what's happening. A hundred percent. I mean, as, as you can see from that, efficacy is what's happened on a clinical trial. Um, effectiveness is what's happening in the real time population. So when we say if the vaccine's effective, well, clearly it's not. If we say that under the clinical trials, it appeared to show efficacy, that's where they can get away with the nuancing of language. And there, that is a really big, important difference in, in, in pharmacological terminology. Those two words mean a completely different thing. Yeah. OK, Debbie, thank you very much for that. Uh, I know you've got a lot of other material which uh, you're going to be sharing with our audience over the uh, coming UK column news is, and we've also got tomorrow, of course. Um, but we'll get on to that and we'll be having a look at, uh, at why the establishment seems to be convinced there's another pandemic com coming and why, of course, out of the blue, everybody seems to be able to talk about only monkeypox. But we'll save that for another time. Debbie, thank you for that. Well, we're going to end there. So we'll say to our audience today, thank you very much for joining us. A very big thank you to everybody who has sent us emails of support and especially to those people who are now taking out subscriptions with us. We can only do what we do with your financial support. So if you're not a subscriber to UK Column, please consider doing that. And uh, we're going to say as this serious world situation continues to play out, we're going to continue to do our best to analyse it and explain what we think the real truth is. Uh, often very different story to the British government. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us. Extra time, extra, Mike. There extra, will yeah. be an extra time in a few moments if you're signed in with us as a member. Thanks very much. We'll see you there. Bye-bye.